0: Is this working? My name's Tim Coulter, Martin, our usual pastor is away today and he's asked me to to bring a message. So I'd like to start first with uh, reading Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the works of his hands. Day after day they pour pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. They have no speech, they have no words, no sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statues of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure, and all of them are righteous. They're more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They're sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern his own errors? Forgive me my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sin. May they not not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. About 10 years ago, my father got really sick um, and ended up in hospital for a very long time with a spinal infection. Uh, We didn't really think that he would survive, but he asked me each time I visited him over the six or eight weeks that he was in hospital to read him two or three psalms every day. And uh, starting with someone, 1, my initial reaction was a little bit of um, embarrassment and, and anxiety because he was in a four-bed ward um, and the other guys were non-Christian and he used an old English RSV translation. And I just wondered how these guys would cope with some of the psalms. You know, there's really difficult, vengeful psalms like 109 and 137. How would they cope? How would they find meaning? But because he, he asked me, I did it. And as I did so, I could see that actually even those psalms meant something to him. Before then, like most people, I had, um, I had sort of a, a dozen or so favorites, and I would only go to them, and I would ignore the others. They were, they were sort of in the too hard basket, and um, I didn't really like them. Some of them even appeared sort of almost unchristian. Um, like Psalm 109, can we put it up there? Jesus said, love your enemies and, and turn the other cheek. But look at this, what the psalmist says about his enemies. May his days be few. May another take his place of leadership. May his children be fatherless and his, widow, his wife a widow. May his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from their ruined homes. May a creditor seize all he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his labors. May no one extend kindness to him or take pity on his fatherless children. May his descendants be cut off, their names blotted out from the next generation. That's nasty stuff. (laughs) Angry, vengeful, what do we do with that? And it sort of got me thinking about why I liked the few psalms that I did and why I was prepared to ignore all the others. And it occurred to me that the ones that I did like were ones that suggested victory, triumph, ease. And it, i worried that I was doing damage to the Psalms. Was I being superficial? Was I just stealing a few helpful verses out of someone else's prayer book? Was it my principles that were dictating what I liked out of the Psalms rather than the Holy Spirit's? You know, one of the things that I like about Talpa Baptist service is that actually we do read a number of the Psalms. Um, but Having said that, even those Psalms that we do read tend to be the ones of victory and and ease. And I just want to talk to you today about another way of reading the book of Psalms, and that's as a book, all of them, one after the other, as my father had asked me to do. Because they are a book, just like Joshua or Jeremiah's book, and they've got significant connected meaning. I, I sometimes wonder if God really is pained by us leaving out so much scripture so if we read the psalms the way that that as a book there's two big consequences firstly if you understand the book how it was knitted together how it was put together how it was what the themes are underneath then the psalms that you do love suddenly come to life and secondly that If we regard the book of Psalms as a book of prayers that will cover every single possible emotion or situation, then when we do come to those situations, we've got a prayer that we can go to at short notice that will express exactly what we want at that time. So first, to understand the themes of the book of Psalms, this is not easy. Um, And a lot of people actually think of the Psalms as uh, just a bunch of... Poems that were or prayers that were stuck together at random, about two or three hundred BC. But it, there's nothing, nothing random about the Bible, and there is nothing random about those ancient Hebrew scholars. They were clever, they were deliberate, and they were guided by the Holy Spirit. And you can detect the themes. So there are five books in the Psalms, and some theologians think that those five books somehow. Look back at the five books of the, the law, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then reflect on mainly on the entire history of God in Israel. And then look forward to to forward to hope. So let, let's look at the book of Psalms. First thing you notice is the books one and two are predominantly Davidic Psalms. They concentrate on, on that era of David. And it was the heady days for Israel. They concentrate on things like covenant, temple, God's presence. And that was great, and it did exist. But we all know that actually Israel's history descended into, went really sour. And very quickly, they, they went into civil war and strife and evil kings. And then, and then eventually into invasion and destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and so on. And then we get to some, uh, the book, uh, the third book and that tends to give an overview of that really difficult, hard time uh, in Israel's history. And there's only one Davidic psalm in that. And that culminates in Psalm 88. And this is a really painful psalm. Darkness, darkness, darkness is my closest friend. It's probably written by some demoralized Jewish slave in Babylon. You know, we tend to look at the TV news and we, we sort of lamented the amount of evil in the, in our society, but it has nothing compared to the evil and the, the, the absolute brutality in those old days. When one nation like Babylon invaded and, and took over another nation, it was their normal military strategy to actually destroy the population, to kill mercilessly all the children, the elderly, the vulnerable, everyone was slaughtered and those who were healthy were taken off as prisoners and slaves. Imagine the hopelessness if you'd you'd had to see your own kids killed and then you face slavery. I sort of got a glimpse of that hopelessness when I was a child. I lived in Africa and um, in Burundi and we We were exposed to a a war between the Tutsis and the Hutus, Mm -hmm. two tribes there. And about 250,000 people were killed in about two or three months. But for an eight-year-old boy back then, the thing that struck me was not the bodies and the gunfire and the fear. What struck me was the look in the eyes of the survivors. They had utter darkness and hopelessness. And it's that that the psalmist that wrote book 3 or that compiled book 3 must have been feeling so how on earth does Israel get out of that that awful spiritual hole that they were in in their exile well book 4 starts with Psalm 90 it's the only one attributable to to Moses and it points Israel back to its heritage to the promises of Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, the faithfulness of God in the, in the exile and, winden- uh, and wilderness or the exodus rather Psalm 90 Lord you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations so book 4 of the Psalms restores Israel's faith its hopes and out of the despair and depth of, of misery that they had they suddenly find their hope and then it leads on to book five, to jubilant hope and praise and Messiah and Jerusalem and Zion and glory and all that. A crescendo of praise. But, but and here's the thing that we actually mostly forget. The psalmist got to book five through books one, two, three, and four. From the upbeat promises of, of the prophetic psalms in book one and two, through that dark, dark valley of book three, to reclaiming the heritage in book 4 and then the hope in book 5 you know today we sometimes claim that hope and joy and victory without acknowledging the hardship and I wonder whether we're actually claiming cheap hope just as Bonhoeffer a famous German theologian suggests that we often claim cheap grace we are sometimes in danger of claiming cheap hope so many modern, charismatic worship songs sort of cherry-pick a few verses out of the psalms and they, they, they claim victory and hope without the trials and the, and the waiting and the anticipation and the longing for the Holy Spirit. I think we get through to true hope through the humility that comes through the hard yards. I just wonder sometimes where that's why some Christians who seem so committed so full of hope and victory and glory and they, they, their face struggles when they face hardship and you wonder whether they're the seed that fell on rocky ground and when there was a drought they struggled. If they'd known those hard dark psalms and and actually developed that hope would they have had some drought resistance? I think we get to the praises of Psalm 146 to 150 through Psalm 88, so that when we do get to Psalm 150, we can really say, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So can, can you see that, you know, if you understand the whole of the book of the Psalms and how it was put together, some that those favourites like 150 suddenly... Get more meaning; they mean more. The Book of Psalms is a complete set, and it was meant as a complete set. I think we have to find some way of acknowledging, of understanding the whole book—the puzzling, disturbing bits as well as the 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 easier, nice ones. I'm not saying for a minute that we shouldn't have our favourite psalms, because you know they, they are prayers that do identify with and speak to real situations and they do give us comfort. But if that's all we're doing, I think we're missing out on something. The second benefit of reading the Book of Psalms as a complete book is that we actually can't ignore them. It forces us to look at them, to understand them and to appreciate them. It forces us to develop a a resource of prayers that we can actually use later on. And then when we're faced with a crisis, we'll have a psalm etched on our heart that we can use in that particular heat at the moment. If we know them in times of peace, we think we can re- reap the comfort in times of pain. So I'd, I'd like to be brave enough to actually tackle the most difficult psalm, 109. The one we just read earlier, the one that everyone laughs at. The one that actually no one reads in church because it's so embarrassing, it's so unchristian. And I want to do that because I want to show that actually all of the Psalms, including the most difficult ones, can be used. But first, let's start by looking at how wonderful Hebrew poetry is. Um, now, I'm the last person qualified to do this because um, literacy wasn't my strong point as a kid. I got 51% in school C English, and my crowning scholarly achievement was to get minus 35 in a, a literature exam. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so New Zealand people don't actually read poetry. We just don't. We, you never hear of anyone sitting down and reading poetry for the sake of it. The nearest we get to it is trying to decipher the indecipherable lyrics of songs. But, you know, people in the Middle East and Israel, they live and breathe poetry, it's their first language. Uh, it struck me a few years ago, I was, I was in the Middle East and I was listening to some news in about the mid 1990s. I was listening to Bill Clinton and Saddam Hussein describe exactly the same incident, but in completely different ways. And it showed how Western men or Western people just do not understand poetry. So here's Bill Clinton. Our objectives are limited but clear to make Saddam Hussein pay for the latest act of brutality. Now that's clear, crisp, you can understand what he says, and it's it's normal. Now Saddam Hussein, for all that, I'm not saying that he was in any way a good man, but I'm just using his language as an example. Here's what he says. Iraq is as steadfast as the high mountains, which are unshakable by the winds of evil, and its sails will not be torn out by the hiss of snakes. Now, if anyone said that to us, we'd be wondering what on earth he'd been smoking. (laughs) But it sounds like the comments of a madman. But he wasn't talking to us. He was talking to Middle Eastern people, and they understand poetry. They knew what he was saying. We tend to look at logical scientific language we appreciate what if someone says something clearly we appreciate it if someone expresses anger hatred anguish we get embarrassed we try and hide it we don't exaggerate it but the Psalms are full of raw power and passion misery uninhibited jubilation sensitivity hope too full of emotion an exaggerated imagery for our culture. It's a blend of lament, sorrow, anger, humility, resignation, hope. And some of their power is because they're put to music, and that's sort of a a classic right brain activity which makes us see things that we can't express. So I want to suggest that if if we're looking at the psalms, if we want to use the psalms, we need to accept them the way they are, Let go of our inhibitions, understand them, pray them, sing them, and feel them the way that the ancient Hebrews felt them. And you can only do that by reading them, reading them, reading them, praying them, praying them, praying them, over and over again. They're prayers written by men to God and used by God as his word to us. So, Psalm 109. Full of exaggeration, emotive language, metaphors, hate, vengeance. The poetic license kind of shocks you. It'd be funny if it wasn't so serious or out of place. But sometimes, how it's, it's real, it's unadulterated, it's bluntly honest. The psalmist wants. Complete annihilation for his enemies. He wants no mercy showed because his enemies showed no mercy. Now, those sentiments just don't make sense to a so-called good modern Christian. But if you're in agony, if you've watched your kids being murdered, that makes abundant sense. It's not pure, it's not good, but it's truthful and sincere. And it's that truthful and sincerity that leads us to being vulnerable and trusting. And it's only when we're vulnerable and trusting that we can start to heal. Imagine a a comparable modern day situation here. Let's say uh, a drunk driver um, killed your, uh, your loved one. Anger would be real and it has to be expressed. But how often in our secular society do we hear anger expressed as vengeance and claims that or calls that the punishment should fit the crime and you get politicians and the media playing along with that and and crying for vengeance Psalm 109 actually teaches us just that we are vengeful creatures. The problem is not that vengeance is in the Psalms but that vengeance is in us So Psalm 109 is not just a therapeutic release. It's poetic language that allows us to express our grief, our anger, our um, bitterness, while expressing it to God. It's a way of saying, here God, this is my pain, this is my anger, this is what I would love to get done, but hey, you do it. You take it over. So I'd like to give you a challenge. Next time you're in pain, next time you're a victim, next time you've been really, really, really offended, try praying 109 with feeling, with commitment, with the offender in mind. Now, you're going to choke on those words. They're not Christian, or they don't feel Christian, and they're going to be hard, but actually, you know, something does really happen. I don't understand why. It may be something to do with the wild exaggeration of those words, or it may actually be the Holy Spirit, but somehow those words actually help you to hand the problem over to God and to do what what non-Christians can't do, to give God the ability of the the vengeance. As Deuteronomy 32 says, vengeance is mine. And this psalm allows you to hand over that to God. You know, modern Christians were taught to, to ignore anger and, and go straight to forgiveness. And, and there's, there's goodness in that. But suppressed grief and anger doesn't heal. It just multiplies. Or the other way that sometimes we want to actually avoid God, we turn away from God when, when it's really hard, But these psalms and, and books like Job give us the ability, give us the words to express it honestly to him. God sees the whole, not just these words, but he sees the heart behind it. So Psalm 109 is no longer the rantings of a vengeful man, but actually the words that God gives us, gives an honest, humble, faithful, anguished Christian, words to be able to hand it over to him. So don't look at the words on the surface, just look at the feeling behind it and if you pray it with that genuine feeling, even that sort of psalm points to the cross. You know, I'm continually surprised at the number of people that I see as a GP who just harbour such anger and bitterness to to previous offences and who would benefit from actually praying that psalm as a way of dealing with the pain. And even if you haven't experienced pain like that, there are many, many Christians around the world who have, and this could be a psalm that you could use to pray meaningfully for those people. So I just hope in a short time I've managed to give you an idea that actually we must and and should use all of the psalms. Billy Graham once said that he read five psalms a day because they taught him about God, how to get along with God, and a chapter of Proverbs every day because it taught him how to get along with his fellow men. And it's really not up to us to reject bits of Scripture that we find difficult. As, as I was trying to do when my father asked me to read all the Psalms. Second Timothy 3.16 says, all Scripture, all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, not just the bits you like. And that's probably especially so with the Psalms. The Psalms are the most quoted book in the Old Testament, that Jesus and the disciples used. It was their much-loved prayer book, and they actually knew it by heart. It shaped Paul and the early Christians, and it actually framed the whole way they looked at Scripture. How can we say that we know and follow Jesus if we actually try to ignore the very bit of Scripture that he was most soaked in? I don't think we can. It, it always used to um, really puzzle me when the disciples asked Jesus, teach us how to pray. And he gave them a prayer that was tiny, you know, six lines. We're taught to live a life of prayer and here we get six lines. How do we do that? And then it occurred to me that actually those disciples had 150 prayers in a prayer book that they treasured and they knew by heart. The Psalms. So I'd just like to encourage you to read the Psalms again. Read it as a book, all of them. To understand them, to rejoice in them, to treasure them, to pray them. All of them. Let's avoid cheap hope so that when the hard times come, we have an armor like a drought resistance that we can use those Psalms. Sing and pray them every day. I'd like to close in prayer. Father, you provide so much for us. You even provide the words we need to express ourselves to you. We're so grateful to you for your love, for your care, for your provision through good times and bad. Bless you, Lord. Amen. Thanks.